HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate, producers of the most delicious bean-to-bar chocolates in Brooklyn. For more information, visit fineandraw.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I would love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. This year is our 10th anniversary here at Heritage Radio Network, and so I need to encourage you, if you are listening to this show, if you listen to any of the other 35 shows every week that come out of this studio, please go online, heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and sign up, become a member. You can get some really cool stuff, uh, some new limited edition pins, a t-shirt, some great spices, a bonbon box from Fine and Raw Chocolate, and lots of other great things. And you can know every time you tune in that you are supporting us here at Heritage Radio Network. Today's theme, what's your food philosophy? There's so many food philosophies floating around these days. For some, it's Taco Tuesday, a format where you eat essentially the same thing on a rotating weekly basis. I don't eat that way, but I have a respect for it and often wonder what my life would be like if I just ate the same thing every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Some people see food as fuel, only in service to their bodies. 
Some choose to be vegan or vegetarian or have philosophies built around specific ailments and ideas about plants and pathogens, how the body deals with food. I try to use everything I buy, probably to a fault. I hate waste in an almost Japanese way, the idea of motai nai or hatred of waste in all things, but in food especially. It's something that can sometimes be overwhelming. I sometimes wish I was ignorant and didn't care so much. Life might be easier to just eat something or buy something without worrying about what to do with the leftovers or where it came from, or if I should save the cord when I throw away or recycle an old computer because I might need it someday. Maybe being the operative word, but that's another whole show about that kind of thing. When we were running the Brooklyn Kitchen as a grocery, it was important to us that we sell goods where we could connect with the buyer and the producer and vice versa. Recognizing that there was a market for that, but that for many of our customers, connecting with the maker wasn't important. They wanted to grow a great prosciutto, or they wanted cheese, and it was all about taste, or it was about the recipe they were working on, or any of a thousand other reasons that they were shopping. Everybody has their own food philosophy. As food has gotten fetishized, there's a lot of options, some great, some masquerading as great. New and old food producers are doing great things to promote new uses for old products and lots of old food ways that have hung on through the dark ages of food to come out here on the other side with a renewed interest in their products. There's lots of chances to mess it up, but my guests today are doing great work to bring classic and some not-so-classic products to the market. I'm excited to welcome my friends Kerry Kimball and Dave Yord. They're the masterminds behind Philosophy Foods, and while you may not have heard of their company, I hope that you've had some of their products that they and their partners make and sell, and if not, do yourself a favor after this show and go out and buy some. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Uh, so tell me about Philosophy Foods. Uh, Philosophy Foods is not either of your first foray into a uh, company in specialty food. Correct. We um, started Philosophy five years ago, about, after we sold our distribution company in Chicago. We wanted to um, enter into more of the national marketing uh, part of the, the business, and we started with two Spanish Companies who we were friends with, Omed Olive Oil and Losada Olives, and decided while we imported their product in Chicago before and did very well, they hadn't um, really gotten to the rest of the country. Yeah. So we put together a plan with them to do that. Luckily, we were pretty successful over yeah. the first three years. And once we got to that point, we decided to add a few more producers to the mix, um, which we could just kind of plug into the distribution network that we had. Got it. Um, but definitely totally B2B company where yep. we're marketing more to distributors across right. the country and, and trying to push our products through either retailers or food service sure. venues through those distributors. Um, and you guys have ended up, I mean, you work with a lot of Spanish brands, yes. right? You have Omed, which is olive oil and vinegars, uh, that we've spent a lot of time talking about. Yep. Um, and Losada Olives, uh, and I'm going to probably not pronounce this correctly, La, La Brujula. La Brujola. La Brujola, <laughs> <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> uh, and that's a company that specializes in tinned fish of all sorts of varieties, shellfish and finfish and all kinds of things. Uh, Aintzia, that's the peppers, right? Right. That you guys have? Yeah, Spanish Basque peppers. Yeah. Pipadas. Uh-huh. And then you have uh, Bahia de la Concha, right? Right. And Bocarones. Bocarones. Yeah. So, uh, how come Spain? That's a long story. Maybe Carrie <laughs> wants to uh, shorten it up a bit than I would say. Yeah, long, long story short, that's our core competency. That was actually the only country that we imported from when we were um, importers and distributors in Chicago. And we worked with probably 
30 producers and 300 products back then. And so that's what we know. And we know how to get the best of all of those products. We don't necessarily know how to go to other countries and, and get the best. And a lot of people are already doing the best of Italy or France sure. or Greece. Yeah, so. I, I, I was going to ask. I mean, I think that, um, you know, you named sort of what I think of as like the big three, right? Where right. a lot of specialty foods come in because of the way that gourmet foods became popular in this country in the 70s. France with Escoffier and people sort of following that. And James Beard certainly right. was a real Francophile. Um, Julia Child certainly had a large influence on that. And then you get into Italy, huge Italian immigrant population right. um, in this country and people kind of searching for those things. But Spain, was Spain not as well represented? At the time, it, correct, not not as much. And I, I've given whole presentations on why Spain was a little bit late to the game because they were actually a dictatorship sure. to the 70s right. and, and fairly isolated. Um, and through that, most of these producers knew how to produce rather than market themselves. Yeah. So even today, it's um, playing a little bit of catch-up. Now, you'll see like all the Spanish, Spanish olive oils are winning all the awards yeah. and much more prevalent. Um, and, you know, probably product category by product category, they're, they're making their mark. Um, but you know, as there's also a very small Spanish immigrant population, right? So that was also, it was lucky how we got into it, but, um, we could be non-Spanish. We could represent, <laughs> uh, the products and, and, and the country where we probably couldn't do that in Italy because, you know, we couldn't sell products against authentic Italians and, sure. and it was, it's so prevalent. So it was kind of an underrepresented category, which we were able to uh, represent well and, and, and succeed with. Cool. And then for those companies, I mean, is it, are you essentially just distributing the same things that they make and sell in Spain? Are the products different for the U.S. market? Is there, has there been product development over the years? That's an interesting question. In fact, Omed, for the longest time, didn't have the goal of selling in Spain. Huh. And Losada didn't brand their own brand in Spain, although they were selling you know, bulk olives throughout Spain, but they weren't doing it under their own label and they weren't doing some of these heirloom, um, naturally cured varieties that we really focus on with philosophy. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love about Omed, I just used some, uh, I think on Saturday is some of the yuzu infused yeah. olive oil. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is like a really interesting, you know, yuzu and everything Japanese is having such a moment here. Yep. And so kind of like to mix that with, uh, Spanish olive oil, I thought was very interesting. How did that product come about? Um, well, we call it pecadito, which means little sin, because <laughs> uh, um, Paula and Wande they have their own groves, they press their own olive oil, they win all sorts of awards with this pure product, which is our base product, and we really try to sell. So to add any sort of flavor or anything that isn't um, yeah, just added, olive oil yeah. is a little sin. However, um, Paula did a um, EU like business class in Japan for a year. Um, she fell in love with yuzu, the fruit, and we, you know, there's so many Agrimoto um, oils out there, but we wanted to do something more unique than mandarin oil or yeah. lemon oil. So they decided to do um, a yuzu oil that they sourced the uh, yuzu from Valencia, hmm. a single farm, and you know, the process where they, they take the peel and they press it with the olives, so yeah. the oils, the two fruits come out together. So it's a really nice product. Um, but again, we always have to bring it back to the 
finishing oils because it's <laughs> the hardest to sell, but um, it is actually the true um, core of their business and, and what we're most passionate about as well. For sure. And then there's two other brands that are not Spanish um, that you guys work with or are connected to. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But um, one is Regalis, yep. uh, who, again, like very much B2B, although the website you can go on there and people can buy stuff um, direct to consumer, yep. um, but really started out as a truffle company, um, but now does caviar and fresh seafood. Um, And then how did you guys end up connected with with Regalis? And Regalis was based here in New York already, right, when you guys moved from Chicago? Yes. Our uh, partner, Ian, had started it, I think, six and a half or seven years ago now. Um, And we knew him before because we used to buy truffles from Ian's old company um, in Chicago. So... When we started importing Omed and Losada, I hit up Ian to start selling our stuff in New York. Got it. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, it's in Kraft and Atera, and he did a great job with it. Yeah. And after about a year or so, he was having trouble with his existing partner. Um, so we fortuitously stepped in, cool. uh, bought out his old partner, and um, it's been a great relationship because... We had 17 years of um, experience in distribution, and uh, Ian's super young. I think he's 26, I think. 26 now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. He couldn't even, he couldn't even buy, buy beer when he started his company. So, we won't talk about that. <laughs> so so his, his talents are really great at promoting the company, promoting sure. the products himself, um, where we had a little bit more business experience, yeah. and it, it worked out to be a great relationship. Awesome. And let's talk about Lady Edison, which kind of is the, you know, is the seventh, seventh brand, I guess, currently under your, uh, under your banner. Um, Well, we were fortunate enough to have a distributor in common in North Carolina that was also selling Lady Edison. And um, the purchaser picked up the phone and said, Dave, you got to try this product. This is right up your alley. And I think the second that we got the ham in, Dave's a very good hamanero. He's actually very good at cutting the ham, even though he doesn't think he is. <laughs> um, he opened it up and just this funk wafted through the whole office. And I didn't know if it was dirty socks or <laughs> if it was stinky cheese, but Fish I just sauce. know I, yeah, I just know I wanted it. <laughs> and it ended up being this incredible thing that we had, we had never had before. Um, it was, it's, I always say it's right up there with an, uh, an amazing abatico or a really well-aged prosciutto. But at the same time, it has nothing to do with either one of those things. It's, right. a, it's a country ham, which is a southern U.S. product. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, their products are great. I first had them um, at the Good Food Awards right. uh, a number of years ago. And they also do a chorizo and a couple of sausages. Yeah. And yeah. Hot and a sweet sopressata. So recently, you know, if you're familiar at all with ham houses in the south or it's, it's difficult it's a dying breed yeah so um the one that sam works with and he's got such an interesting business model where he works with a animal welfare approved uh north carolina hog co-op he's buying whole hogs from them and he like parses out the whole animal in different ways so obviously the more most well known is the ham and that's what we got into, um, and we represent them nationally, except for in North Carolina. But um, originally, the ham house was buying the pork from Sam, hmm. curing the ham under Sam's name, Lady Edison, and selling us the cured uh, leg. 
the ham house got in a little bit of money trouble, so we were like on the fence and we almost had to shut it down. Oh, wow. um, so I worked out a deal with Sam and stepped in and, and partnered um, in the ham portion of his, his company so we could save it. And, and so right now we're buying a, a whole lot of pork legs. That's awesome. <laughs> and hopefully no one in the North Carolina um, hog farmers cooperative <laughs> hears this to know that we almost didn't continue. <laughs> but you did, right? We did. Yeah. And, and how is the business in that? I mean, in the ham, how's it it's doing? Great. Like, we're, we're so, we sell out of the hams before they're all pre-ordered and wow like it's great that's amazing i mean especially with a product that takes so long to make yep and you it's know, 18 months i mean it's a long it's a long lead time yeah um so you know you only have as many as you have ready at any given moment we have to give big ups to jonathan at Antiota cheese in california because he's taking half the hams and he's got them going all through california mm. at like at great places so he's he's uh we have to thank him first <laughs> <laughs> um that's awesome so you guys are, this is like your busiest season. Thank you so much for making time to come talk to me today because the New York Fancy Food Show is coming up uh, like this weekend, yes. correct? Um, so that happens twice a year for people who are not in the in the food industry. There's the Fancy Food Show. Um, I've always thought it was funny that it was called the Fancy Food Show <laughs> because I don't know what that means. Uh, you know, like, would you guys ever describe what you sell as fancy food? Well, the ham is called extra fancy country ham. <laughs> it's kind of a play on words, <laughs> so uh, maybe a very we're guilty of that. Way, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know that we would call it fancy, but um, it, it's just food that we believe in. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to. I think nowadays it's hard to differentiate, or it's hard to market your products, um, either really traditional or or best in class versus a lot of um, the marketed products out there because um, the industry that like you were involved in from the beginning is, has become so big and the bigger players yeah. um, are swooping in. Yeah. And so, you know, it's hard for a buyer to know what's real or what's really well marketed. Yeah. So it's, uh, I think it's a huge challenge that we're almost uh, victims of our own success at sure. this point. I mean, it's an interesting point. You know, you, you then see companies that are being bought by these larger companies and, you know, whether that whether that changes the product or not, it changes the marketing of the product and often does end up changing the product. Yep. Um, you know, and, and not always for the better. Yeah. I mean um, you had it in your own in your own shop. You yeah. know, you had to make those decisions and yep. price decisions versus um, you know, dealing against larger box stores that are selling something the same or similar. Yep. It's, it's, you know, and I think even in, in Brooklyn, which is the epicenter, right? You yeah. see a lot of cheese shops, especially shops struggling or having to change their, their, what they're doing because it's, it's a different atmosphere now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and in some cases that's good, right? Yep. I mean, it, it's certainly like, you know, when I started to see Cowgirl Creamery at the, you know, local C-Town supermarket, yep. Yep. you know, like that blew my mind. Yep. And I mean, for better or worse, like they weren't necessarily handling the cheese super well in that supermarket, right. but it did mean that that was good for the producer right. to a certain extent, right? I mean, that they were growing as a company that they were able to grow. Right. However, since we're more, we play both sides of the distribution yeah. game as a producer representative and a distributor, um, once you go through those larger channels, the, either a large distributor or a large retailer doesn't necessarily understand how much you're struggling or what you're doing to succeed. Yeah. And they start putting those same bill back pressures or price pressures on you 
uh, or the producer. And as a producer, you want to grow. Yeah. And and that's where like you have that choice to like, well, do I cut some corners here to drop the price, or can I like mortgage my house to give a marketing <laughs> fee? <laughs> so you know, it it does like that. That's a scary part where it does change sometimes the integrity of the product, and the consumer has to understand what they're paying for yeah. and why things are more expensive, which is hard to communicate. Absolutely. So at the fancy food show, you know, you guys will be surrounded by. Iberico hams from Spain. Oh, the literally other across oils, right? from us in the aisle is for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so, you know, so is it really just about getting the FaceTime with those buyers and really trying to find the right buyers to get them to come to your booth? It's not even about hoping they'll come to their booth. It's basically begging them <laughs> to stop by. And it's, it's even more exciting for us this year because now we have seven producers. Yeah. All seven of them are going to come in. So we've had five people fly in from Spain. Nice. Sam's flying in from North Carolina with the ham and launching some new products. Of course, we're the local New York people for yeah. Regalis. But um, it's... I do a lot of canvassing. I I feel like I'm like running for homecoming queen or something at this point. (laughs) Please come to our booth. (laughs) Please meet our producers. They work really hard and they want to be represented in your, in your spaces. I mean, what I remember from going to the show though, is that when you would come, when, when there was a booth like yours, or I remember, you know, like Olympia provisions or like, you know, any of these smaller producers, McClure's pickles, Rick's picks, you know, people that I knew Mm -hmm. it was always so exciting to see what they had on offer and, or to discover someone like that, because Mm -hmm. it's so clear when you're standing there, you taste it and you're like, oh, this is really good. Yeah, Carrie's uh, developed the method of tackling people in the aisles to bring her in. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little creepy. <laughs> Just because we we concentrate on olive oil and olives for so long. Yeah. Trust me, it's not the most exciting pe- thing like a charcuterie or a cheese where sure. it's not the first thing people like gravitate to. Yeah. Well, there's also a problem, too, of, of that show. It's so big. Right. And people are tasting. I mean, I tell people, if you're going for the first time, don't eat anything. Yeah. Unless you, unless right. something you really want to taste. Right. Because you walk around for four hours and you taste cheese and prosciutto right. and chocolate and whatever else, your palate is just right. murdered. Yeah. And you can't taste anything. Well, beyond that, for us, it's it's paramount to have the pr- actual producer there. Right. So um, the guys who are actually the mill master are actually growing the olives or... Um, Packing the tin fish. Yeah, it's marinating uh, the anchovies. That's where we make the connection with the customer. Of course, and yeah. we, every time we listen to a presentation, we learn something new as well, yep. which um, is great. Awesome. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network, and uh, we'll keep talking about delicious food when we come back. Awesome. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate. They make bean-to-bar chocolate and confections in HRN's backyard here in Brooklyn. Fine and Raw is committed to sustainably sourcing their cocoa beans directly from organic cocoa farmers. They use minimal processing and stone grinding to accentuate chocolate flavor and aroma. Their chocolate is sweetened exclusively with unrefined coconut sugar, which blends delicious caramel notes into the chocolate. Crafted for chocolate lovers, all of Fine & Raw's bars, truffles, and spreads are 100% plant-based. From creamy bars blended with nut butter to salt-sprinkled dark chocolate, sweet truffle bars to toasty coconut dulce de leche, 
Fine and Raw is obsessed with creating next-level flavors. Their chocolate hazelnut butter made with the best Oregon hazelnuts is the best thing you could ever eat with a spoon. It begs to be drizzled on ice cream, waffles, strawberries. You get the idea. Above all, Fine and Raw is a community of people dedicated to the idea that chocolate is magic. Visit fineandraw.com for your chocolate fix. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. If you're just tuning in, I am sitting in the studio today with Carrie Kimball and David Yord of Philosophy Foods. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the fancy food show. Uh, I just want to give a little shout out to the Good Food Awards, which was yeah. started some years ago as kind of a, a uh, I don't know, fancier, not that's the wrong word, but like to celebrate producers, I think, in the way that both the Brooklyn Kitchen had and the way Philosophy Foods does, uh, much more so than the Fancy Food Show does. For people who are listening who've never been to the Fancy Food Show, while it does include great producers and great distributors like the ones that Philosophy Foods displays, it also includes like jelly belly jelly beans right. and like all kinds of basically commodity food stuff, everything from candy to fish to... Uh, uh, chocolate to um, pickles. I mean, everything you could possibly imagine under the sun. And really from like the most commodity down to like the smallest producer ever. Um, and the thing that I always found interesting in the years that I was attending the show regularly is it'd always be a thing. Like one year it was alcohol infused whipped cream. And it was like there were like <laughs> there were like a dozen or more companies that were promoting some kind of alcohol infused whipped cream thing. I know and, what you're talking about. We were right next to one. Yeah, I remember now. And one year it was like savory tea, like tea made from vegetables and other stuff. Like, and so I feel like every year there's some weird thing that shows up that is like, I don't know, the large food companies are just like throwing darts at the wall. Yeah. Yeah, we went to, we didn't exhibit, but we did a mercantile show in LA. So they, uh, they piggybacked it on the Expo West. Oh, yeah. And that was like every CBD infused <laughs> anything, every you know, uh, vegan. That the body was not products our style. were amazing at that show, though. I will say, if you're into holistic, natural body products, that, that was very interesting. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit. Uh, you know, I I think uh, I'm sure we all kind of follow the economy, right? Yep. Uh, we are about to hit a, the a mark, which is 120 months of straight growth in the American economy, which is the longest or ties the whatever the economists regard as the longest like uh, you know positive run yep. in economic history uh, or modern economic history. So you guys were in the specialty food business in 2008. Yep. The last time we were in a recession. Yep. Um, any lessons from that time period as we look towards, I mean, there has to be another recession, right? Yep. Well, that's when we bought it. That's how we got into uh, Spanish uh, imports. Mm. Uh, 2008, we had the opportunity to buy a distribution route from a Spanish import company in Chicago, and it was more money than we'd ever spent in our lives. Um and we also had nothing to lose <laughs> because we were very young. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that's sort yeah. of, I mean, that, you know, that's how the Brooklyn Kitchen got started, yeah. too. But we decided to go for it. And I think most, most companies that were aggressive during that time, smart about it, I came out on top. And a lot of companies who kind of regressed and 
um, became a lot more conservative and didn't go out and plow out and do what they, they did, uh, I think suffered for a long time afterwards. So um, I'm not saying that's what we would do again because we're much older, but, um, <laughs> you know, you can't be scared. And there's been cycles through forever. So if, if um, that's what you're going to make your business plan on, I don't, I don't think it's a long-term strategy. you got to yeah. be careful. But you have to be aggressive for sure, because right. this industry is, I mean, compared to even eight years ago, it, it, it seems, feels like something changes every quarter, hmm. you know, and you have to be in front of it and you have to be on top of it and you have to uh, be able to adapt your company to uh, new factors and economy is just one of them, you right. know, so it's my opinion. Yeah. Have the tariffs had any effect on you guys? Um, let's see. For Regalis, we were importing some cultivated morels from mm. China, and that pretty much stopped that. Uh, although this season is, even though it's cultivated, it is a little bit seasonal. So, yeah. um, but that's the only we do a little bit now. Uh, we found some caviar from China just on the side, which didn't really affect us that much. Um, one interesting thing is before. It wasn't necessarily Trump's tariffs, but it was um, in California. And I, I can't explain it well enough because I'm not as well-versed, but they, there's a huge tariff now on black ripe olives, which we don't uh -huh. sell, okay? But there's two large companies in California basically lobbied for this. What's strange about it is that they cannot produce enough olives to sell what they already sell in California. So they're importing a lot from Spain, um, and this is the, the kind of like what you think of as like a black olive. Like if you go to a pizzeria and order exactly olives right. on the pizza, like oxidized round zeros, <laughs> oxidized ripe olives. Now, yeah. even though that's not what we sell or that's not what we do, the growers in Spain and growers in California grow olives on their trees to produce those. Um, and it's a huge deal in the industry now. And the funny thing is one of the companies the laws got very strange, and you could only buy from California unless you pulled out of this agreement. And one of these companies who got the tariffs in place, pulled out of the agreement, and then got bought by a Spanish company in which they're buying all their olives from Spain again. So it was a, an idea of tariffs that went incredibly wrong yeah. um, for protection reasons sure. and political reasons, yeah. and, and it's not letting the market's economy like uh, take place and... and I don't know. It was, you can read about it, Google it online, and right. you'll be able to tell much more than I can explain. But it was, uh, it was very interesting. Huh. That I mean, yeah, that does seem like a really uh, a weird a weird thing. I I have heard tell, and I'm going to be in Maine in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to uh, try and go talk to some lobstermen that I know up there. That uh, the tariffs with China have hugely affected that business yep. because China bought you know, was a huge buyer of fresh lobsters and right. live lobsters from the United States. Right. Um, and that it's really decimated or really affected that business. Right. Um, pretty, pretty terribly. You know, it was the, the Spanish producers were, it's their theory with the olives that, you know, these companies had this idea and this plan in place already and they were just waiting for the right president to do it. Huh. <laughs> so, Very interesting. We'll see. <laughs> um, so, I had asked about uh, if you guys had any travel plans coming up, and you say you're hoping to go to Korea. 
in the fall. Right. Well, we'll see about that. Hopefully the dates work out and we can go and visit some um, producers of the Gotham Grove portfolio, see some really amazing um, Korean black vinegar producers, awesome. have yeah, some for digestion. Have, and... Yeah, Gotham Grove has been on this show. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Their stuff's amazing. Their stuff is really, they're importing such such incredible stuff. So do you guys think that like, so you guys are just, you are a distributor? Yeah. For them? We, we have a deal. We basically do all the distribution in New York for okay. them. Very cool. Um, I mean, you know, if you're gonna go, if you're gonna go that far, uh, and you're gonna stop in Japan, let me know. I know about some olive growers really? in Japan. Yes, there's uh, a good chance that the that there could be a layover there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and since you guys are, I believe you're both olive oil sommeliers. Is that correct? <laughs> we are. <laughs> <laughs> I found that when I did a little googling. About yeah. It, you know. <laughs> Dave's not one much for titles, but uh, <laughs> I, I think it's important. And, um, you know, there are so few people around the world that know very little about olive oil. I mean, for certain here in the U.S., we can say that. And the fact that we just know, you know, people who know a little something actually know a lot. The fact right. that we've, you know, studied intensely for six days and tasted hundreds of oils back to back. I think it says something about what we're able to uh, pass along to other people who, who, who don't know as much and try right. to try to share that information. Um, at the same time, I guess that we want to, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, it's, it's, uh, the olive oil industry industry is amazing. And, um, it's verse and there's, there's so many different producers Understanding it is is difficult, yeah. and it does take um, a lot. And I think that um, for olive oil, um, I don't know if you ever had Carlos Yescas on the on the um, show. He's mm-hmm. an expert in the Mediterranean diet, and uh, olive oil is the base fat. You know, it, everything is, it starts with olive oil, and and that's what makes the Mediterranean people so healthy. It's an antioxidant, and you know we're so used to Anglo Anglo cuisine here, where it's animal fats and sweet fats and butter and, and high temp cooking um, that that being able to coax full flavors out of lighter dishes like you have in the Mediterranean diet starts with very good olive oil because you yeah. want to get those flavors but getting people to understand that there's bitterness or different flavors is what's our job um, yeah. and it's a difficult one but we're, we're trying hard at it <laughs> uh, to that end do you guys see uh like, are, do you have new products or new producers on the horizon that you're hoping to work with? Like, would you want to also have another olive oil or have other vinegars or other things kind of in your brand stable? No, even in, when we had a pure distribution company, we tried to really concentrate on one brand mm-hmm. per um, product category because we work as partners and, and we need to show that we're putting our full effort behind them. That being said, you know, we do have another outlet through Regalis where we kind of... Um, can widen our horizons where yeah. philosophy we're really working on exclusive arrangements and, sure. and few producers but we were just in galicia uh two months ago and we started bringing in fresh seafood right from the port in galicia wow. so about 12 different species and that's been going great we visited this so those just those get flown in like flown to jfk yep and then well, and you guys work, unfortunately oh, into <laughs> <laughs> and then you guys have a warehouse in long island city right Correct. and you recently i mean regalis recently installed this crazy live tank right yes so you guys have like live yes. crabs and yes. things 
yes. in the warehouse. From Norway. And, but the, the, the fish don't go in the live tank. They're dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing we're really excited about is this seaweed producer called Porto Munoz. That we, wow. um, this guy's a mad scientist, and, and he just showed us how to use everything. And they go uh, basically um, snorkeling to um, to harvest everything, and he's he's creating cultivated cultivated varieties, and just sitting in his kitchen for like two hours, and he showed us how to use and everything and the, and the different flavors and like fifteen different varieties. Um, we're getting the labels together now, but that's something we're we're super excited about. That'll be interesting to pave the way for um, seaweed in the U.S. Yeah. It took him a long time to do it in Spain and throughout Europe, and I don't think the trend is so hot and heavy here yet. So I think it'll be uh, our job to try to help people understand how to use it and and hopefully excite them about it beyond yeah. the Japanese type varieties. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think I think there I think that is a I think there's a real I mean. To, to say we've scratched the surface is actually we haven't even done that yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think there's a huge opportunity there. Um, it's a you know there's almost every seaweed is edible. I yep. think yeah. Uh, it's an incredible you know incredible resource. It's easily renewable. Yeah. Um, lots of you know it's it's it sort of ticks all the boxes yeah. right. Like yep. It's got you know essential minerals and it's got protein and it's got all you know there are fats there and it's got everything kind of yeah. going for it yeah. um except that like in the white anglo like american <laughs> right. like, way of looking at things people think it's gross <laughs> right right <laughs> well this like you would know way you think it was a regular salad the the, the quality of the product that he was putting nice. out it was, it yeah. was unbelievable and the salad that you have at you know the seaweed salad that you have at japanese restaurant yeah. is completely different yeah. than the quality that we got to have by just drizzling a little bit of olive oil and a, a touch of vinegar. Awesome. That sounds great. I can't wait to, uh, can't wait to try it. You got it. Well, thank you guys so much for, for joining me on Feast Your Ears. Thank, um, you. thank you. It's very exciting. And I really, I encourage everybody to go out and, you know, ask questions about the food that you are buying as much as you possibly can and really try to find people, um, you know, that can connect you with the producers, whether that's the farmer who's raising the chicken that you're eating or whether that is the person who is growing and pressing the olive oil that you're using. The more we can use, I think, the uh, technology that we have, I mean, the fact that you can get on a plane and go to Galicia and do these things or the fact that you can get online and find pictures of a place or follow along on Instagram, like yeah. these are all tools. Yeah. And I think they're really powerful for us being more connected as people, actually not less connected. Uh, you can check out philosophyfoods.com uh, for more information on the brands that uh, David and Carrie are promoting. And you can follow on Instagram at philosophyfoods. Uh, I'll definitely be following along in the fall when you guys go to Korea. That sounds <laughs> awesome. Maybe we can, maybe Jen will take me too. Maybe I can come along. I think you, you should definitely invite yourself <laughs> like we did. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. This is our 10th anniversary uh, at Heritage Radio Network, so please go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and become a member today. And please take a moment to rate and review the show if you liked it, uh, or even if you didn't, I guess. Uh, you can reach out to me if you have any questions. Email me at harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.